Chapter Eleven of the Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: A Wet Camp. The morning broke cloudy and threatening, and with a northeast wind which was cold and disagreeable. It was decided, however, to push on. If they must lay over anywhere, they preferred that it should be nearer the other end of the voyage. Pat Malone was on hand in time to eat breakfast with him, and contributed as his share a brace of fat rabbits ready for the frying pan. With such a breakfast as this, the boys were in high spirits despite the weather. "'Pat, is it going to rain?' asked Woodhall, studying the flying scud as it drove across the sky. "'Sure now, Mr. Woodhall. Wouldn't you be just as pleased to be asking an honest boy a question?' which would tempt him to tell the truth instead of hanging a lie on the tip of his tongue inquired pat scratching his head as in turn he studied the sky lewis laughed which means that you think it's going to rain but you don't want to say so well i think the same thing but i guess we'll push on just the same and trust the luck that we'll be able to find a dry camp he said Walter, liking the looks of things no better than the others, filled both ends of both canoes with kindling wood and birch bark. Jammed up in the rounding ends, it was protected from rain and also from such water as might accumulate in the bottom of the canoe. Lewis nodded his approval. "'Wise boy,' said he. "'Now let it rain.' It did rain. Hardly had the canoes disappeared around the first bend when Pat Malone felt the first drops of the coming storm. Pat was a good woodsman, and he knew by the feel of the wet wind and the lowering weight of the clouds that this was going to be no passing shower. He tightened his belt and started at a smart trot for the lumber camp. "'Tis a drowning and nothing less, Begora. Them boys will be after getting this day,' he muttered. Discomfort, grinding, monotonous physical discomfort, hour after hour, with no immediate relief in sight, and with nothing of excitement to distract the attention." This is the real test of the qualities of the man or boy in the woods. To this test the four voyagers were now subjected. As usual, they had started bare-armed, wearing their sleeveless jerseys. They had not gone above a mile when Walter noted with just a trace of contempt that Plimpton was slipping on his sweater. Within another mile, Walter and Hal were both glad to follow Sister's example. The wind was raw, cold, searching. It seemed to pierce to the very marrow. At first it drove before it a heavy mist like a wet blanket. This soon dissolved into rain, which increased until it was a veritable downpour. This was a signal for the ponchos, and right glad were the paddlers to slip them on. It was awkward paddling with them, but they kept the sweaters from wetting through and the wind was less penetrating. The reaction from the excitement of the previous day, added to the depressing weather conditions, tended to lower the spirits of the boys and as hour succeeded hour with no let-up in the storm, Woodhall watched his three charges closely. He was too old a hand at this sort of thing to mind it much himself, but he knew that before the day was over the tempers of the others would be sorely tried and that he would have an opportunity to get something of a line on the real stuff in the boys. For an hour or two they laughed and joked, rallied at each other, and made light of their discomfort. The lapses of silence between these sallies grew longer. Finally, the swish of the blades through the water and the drumming of the rain on the ponchos were the only sounds to be heard. This lasted for some time, in fact, until the rising wind began to whip up the edges of the ponchos and dash the rain underneath. 
The khaki trousers had wet through, and below the waist everyone was soaked to the skin. Even their feet were wet despite waterproof shoe packs which each wore. The water simply ran down their legs and in at the tops of the moccasins. Hal was the first to break the silence and voice his misery. Perhaps you call this fun, but I don't, he growled to Walter. The latter grinned but said nothing. The water was running in a stream from the end of his nose. Lewis ought to have had sense enough to stay in camp on a day like this. We could have spent the day at the lumber camp and have been dry and comfortable and had a mighty good time in the bargain, Hal grumbled on. How in the deuce are we going to make a decent camp tonight? I'm about frozen now, and I'll bet everything in the packs is soaked through. We'll have a cold dinner and wet blankets and— Oh, shut your head, snapped Walter. You make me tired. I thought you wanted to rough it. And here you are, squealing, and the very first time the sun forgets to shine. Buck up, man. I don't hear sister peeping. He probably hasn't got sand enough even to squeal, grumbled Hal. I'm about frozen. Why in thunder doesn't Lewis get us under cover somewhere? This is enough to give us all our death. Exercise your arms more and your jaw less, and you needn't worry about the cold, retorted Walter. Hal growled something inaudible, but once more resumed his paddle. It was Hal's first experience of the kind. The only real camping he had ever done was on one or two trips of a couple of days each with one of the guides from Woodcraft Camp, and these trips had been in good weather and under pleasant conditions. He imagined he was a whole lot more miserable than was actually the case. Walter had been through the mill before and was disposed to take matters philosophically. But in his sharp retorts to Hal he showed that his temper felt the strain. Plimpton said nothing. What he thought he kept to himself. He was chilled to the bone and his teeth chattered, but he resolutely clinched them and kept paddling. He was bound that, come what might, he wouldn't squeal. The other boys, Woodhall accepted, looked on him as a weakling. He knew that they tried not to show their feeling, but he was almost morbidly conscious of his own shortcomings and lack of physical development, and this made him acutely conscious of their attitude. His terror at the harmless snake had mortified him beyond expression, and he had brooded over it ever since. They think I'm yellow. I'm a coward and a quitter, but I'll show him. I'll show him. He knew that Woodhall didn't share this feeling, and he was intensely grateful for the thousand and one helpful ideas and words which Lewis gave him. A dozen times he had wanted to tell his comrade the cause of his going to pieces the night of the initiation, how all his life he had been subject to nervous breakdowns, and how one of these, brought on by excitement and an overwrought imagination, had been the direct cause of what he felt was his disgrace that night, but somehow he could not bring himself to. Woodhall never referred to the matter even indirectly, yet managed to make the high-strung, sensitive boy feel that he understood, as indeed he did, and that he had full faith in him. So now, while Hale was grumbling, Plimpton grimly compressed his thin lips and resolved that, come what might, he should not hear a word of complaint from him. Woodhall, sitting in the stern, watched the slight figure ahead and noticed the determined swing of the younger boy's blade as the querulous voice of Hal floated over to them. "'He'll do. We'll make a man of him yet,' he murmured to himself. And then, as he caught the tones, though not the words, from the other boat, a smile lighted up his dripping face. "'It's getting him,' he muttered. "'I thought it would.' I'll wait a bit longer and see just how long their sand will hold out before an open revolt. 
and I'll put some hot soup in their little tummies, and they'll discover that the sun really rises and sets in that useful organ. An hour passed. It was now well past noon. The rain continued to fall as if the gates of the floods of Noah had been loosed. Twice they had to go ashore in order to empty the canoes. At last Hal could stand it no longer. St. Louis, is this fast day? He called in a voice intended to be sarcastic. Not that I know of, replied the chief pleasantly. Getting hungry? Hal dug his paddle into the water savagely. "'Oh, no, I'm not getting hungry,' he snapped bitterly. "'And I'm not wet nor cold. Oh, no, not a bit. "'A pretty day this is to be paddling.' "'His tummy's about ready for that soup,' quoth Lewis to himself. "'But aloud he said cheerily, and quite as if it was all a matter of course, "'I believe a bite to eat will taste rather good myself. "'That little bluff over there to the left has got a pretty good windbreak of balsams.' "'Suppose we see if we can get the said bite over there.' The bluff proved to be even better than it had promised, and Woodhall at once made up his mind that they would camp there for the rest of that day and night. But he said nothing of this to the others. The canoes had been lifted out in order to empty them of water, and were now inverted over their packs. Under one of these Woodhall now crawled, and opening his pack took out a small package. "'Walt, are you woodsmen enough to start a fire?' he called. "'I guess so, Lewis. We'll have a try at it anyway,' replied Walter cheerily, with a bundle of kindling and birch bark which he had kept fairly dry in the stern of his canoe he started for the shelter of the balsams, calling for Hal to bring the axe. No sooner had the two boys turned their backs than Lewis produced a quart pail, out of which he took a little alcohol burner, and on this set the pail. Filling the lamp with alcohol from a bottle, he emptied his canteen into the pail, lighted the lamp, and by the time he had succeeded in digging out the four drinking cups of the outfit, the water was hot. A bullion cube was dropped into each cup, and a cup filled with boiling water. With a steaming cup in each hand, Woodhall and Plimpton joined the two firemakers under the balsams. Walter and Hal gaped foolishly, for they knew nothing of the little alcohol outfit of Woodhall's and he had told Plimpton to keep quiet. "'Say, Lewis,' drawled Hal, "'order me a porterhouse steak smothered in onions served in fifteen minutes, please. "'By the way, who's your chef?' "'Already the sun begins to shine,' said Woodhull. Hal stuck his head out from under the shelter of one of the thickest balsams, only to draw it back in disgust. "'Not so you'd notice it,' he growled. "'Say, Lewis,' "'If it wasn't for this soup, I think you'd have gone patty. "'This soup sure does go right to the spot, "'and life begins to look worth living. "'Wherefore, I repeat, the sun begins to shine,' said Woodhall. "'Walter grinned, for he began to see the point. "'If we can put some good fat bacon behind the soup, "'it'll shine still more,' said he. "'Can't you cook a mess over that magic fire of yours, Lewis? "'I think your fire will serve us quite as well,' said Woodhall. Go rustle up the cooking outfit and grub bag, and the rest of us will see what we can do for firewood. Bidding the other two follow him, Lewis plunged into the woods, where, as he had expected, he soon found some down timber, the heart of which was still sound and dry. Under his expert handling of the axe, a supply of this was soon ready for the others to take over to the fire which Walter had successfully started. The hungry flames leaped in eager attack upon the supply of fuel now fed it, 
and soon a rousing fire was shaking its red banners in defiance of the downpour. Walter had chosen the spot for it wisely. He had picked out a big tree which leaned at a sharp angle, thus affording a natural shelter, and here he had experienced no difficulty in starting his fire. A thick growth of evergreens to windward broke the force of the rain, and with the dry heartwood which Lewis now furnished there was no difficulty in maintaining as big a fire as desired. A little to one side Walter improvised a shelter of poles over which he spread his poncho, and under which he raked some glowing coals from the main fire. Over these the bacon was quickly done to a turn. How good it did taste! Only those who have been in a like situation, wet, cold, and hungry, can appreciate the difference in their feelings which that meal made. Hal, who had been the loudest in his complaints, was now quite restored to his usual high spirits, and was the first to second Woodhull's suggestion that they camp there for the night. The tents were brought up and pitched so that the heat from the fire was reflected into them. A mass of balsam boughs were cut and dried by piling them close to the fire under the shelter where Walter had cooked the dinner. When thoroughly dried, the twigs were stripped off and spread on the ground inside the tents to a depth of several inches. Over these the ponchos were spread, and on these the blankets. It was as comfortable a camp as could be desired, the more enjoyable by contrast with the chill discomfort without. A plentiful supply of firewood was piled up close at hand, and then the boys prepared to enjoy themselves in lazy ease with the tents. Hal took off his moccasins and hung them near the fire to dry. An hour later Walter, going out to feed the fire, noticed them. "'Guess your moccasins are dry, Hal,' he said on his return, and then as Hal went out to get them, he nudged Woodhall and Plimpton to look out and see the joke. They saw Hal standing with jaw dropped, his eyes riveted on two shapeless things which hung in the place of his moccasins. His first thought was that Walter had put up a joke on him and had substituted something else for the moccasins. Gradually it dawned on him that these were, or at least had been, the moccasins themselves. He had hung them too near the fire. The grease in them had dried out, and they had hardened and warped until every stitch in them had broken, and now they hung shapeless and as hard as a board. Unconscious of his spectators, Hal walked over to his erstwhile shoes and hurled first one, then the other, as far from him as he could. Then he turned a face in which anger and chagrin struggled for control to face his mirth-shaken comrades. Presently his own sense of humor overcame every other feeling, and he joined with the others the laugh at his own expense. "'It's lucky I brought along a pair of tennis sneaks,' said he. "'It's lucky you did,' replied Woodhall dryly. End of chapter 11